Okay, so today we come to Revelation chapter 10. So go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Revelation chapter 10. We're seeing how the Apostle John continues to describe to us here what the, the Lord revealed to him in a vision. Again, I just bring you into remembrance of that because as we get deeper into these chapters, it's easy to forget where we started in chapter one. And, you know, what's the premise of all this? Well, John is, the Apostle John was physically on the island of Patmos where he had been exiled for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while John was there, as a prisoner, you would say, the Lord appeared to John in a vision. And in Revelation chapter 1, we saw where it said that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he said, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is what the Lord Jesus spoke to John in that vision. So this morning, we continue to study here that book, that all of that that Jesus told John to write. And if you've missed any of the teachings thus far and you feel so inclined, you can go into iTunes and listen to our past studies as a podcast or you can go directly to aloveoutreach.com and listen to them there. But let's go ahead now and jump on into this part of the vision. So we are in Revelation chapter 10. Did I say that in the beginning? Yeah. Okay. Um, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, I just want to pause here briefly, because when I was studying this, you know, this week, you know, there's a whole lot that we're reading here in Revelation that can be kind of crazy to our natural minds. I've had people ask me, why didn't the Lord just speak in plain English? After all, English is the only language there is, right? At least that's what the majority of Americans think. But in all seriousness, these things we are reading can really trip you out in a sense, right? They can really uh, you know, be confusing to your natural mind when you read this kind of stuff. But remember, what we're dealing with here is by no means natural. And the Lord didn't intend for this to be. We are dealing with something supernatural here. And we're talking about things in Revelation here that our minds and uh, our eyes have no comprehension of when we read something like we just read here in verse one, right? We don't see these things on a daily basis in our lives with our physical eyes. We don't think in this way, right? We can have a crazy dream maybe, that looks like this. But remember, we're dealing with something spiritual here and John is in a vision and the Lord is explaining something to him. Right? As again, as I've said in the past and we've talked about all the symbolism that is in this book and a good portion of that symbolism is based in Old Testament scriptures. And I've said in the past that the, the original recipients of this letter, those of the seven churches of Asia, they had their scriptures in their days. They didn't have 
they didn't have what we have today, like the Gospel of John and Mark and Luke and such. They didn't have all of that in their day, but they had the first five books, at least, of what we have in our Old Testament. So they had a knowledge of those scriptures, okay? And a lot of this symbolism was based in that, right? And we really can't read this book, though, like we can read the Gospels or even the epistles that Paul wrote and such, or Peter, you know, and we can't just get a a plain and simple meaning out of it all. When I study the Gospels or I study, you know, one of the epistles, I get just a plain and simple meaning out of it. But with all of that being said, and we also know from chapter one of the Revelation that Jesus said of this book, though, he said something special about this book. He said that anyone that reads this book or even hears the prophecies of this book would be blessed. So there's a special blessing in it. And I have a very, I'm I'm very firmly rooted in that fact because I got saved reading this book. I, I came one day in my apartment in 1986, picked up the Bible, didn't know where to start with it. I had read a little bit of the Proverbs prior to that because there was a guy witnessing to me and such. But I picked it up, and and this was when my life was at wit's end, so to speak. I was at the end of my rope. I didn't know where to read. I just read Revelation. And after I got up from the table from reading Revelation, I went over and I got on my knees and I gave my life to the Lord. And the Lord came into my life and I stood up and I was born again. And my life started all over on that day. So I can testify to the power of just reading this book. I can testify to the power of just hearing the words of the prophecies of this book, okay? And that's why I'm so bent on teaching the word in the way that I do, because of the power of the word of God to change us on the inside. Again, though, we're talking about things spiritual. We're not talking about things natural, okay? We're talking about the spiritual realm, right? So, um, so whether your carnal mind captures all of this or not, we are blessed to study it, right? So as we approach this book, the only way we really can, we, we approach it, excuse me, in the only way that we really can, and that is in a spiritual manner. And we do so by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. We may not grasp everything in this book completely, but we will be blessed simply by studying what the Lord has said here. And so John sees yet another mighty angel. Coming down from heaven here in verse one, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. So in parts of this vision, we have seen the viewpoint of John as if he were in heaven, right? He's explaining it to us what's happening in heaven, okay? But in some parts, John seems to indicate that his viewpoint is from the earth below as well in this vision. And here in verse one is an occasion of that. John sees this angel coming down from heaven, he says. And what about the description of this angel? He is clothed with a cloud, has a rainbow on his head, face like the sun, and feet like pillars of fire. Should this mean anything to us today? There is much speculation. Many different Bible commenters have written on who this angel is. Personally, I believe he is who John says he is. And that is, he's a mighty angel, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow on his head, face like the sun and feet like pillars of fire. That's how I look at the Bible. 
just very simplistically. That's how I tend to look at the Bible when I study it. I want the face value first. I want to just see what it plainly says to me. And then we'll dig deeper. And then we'll go from there. And then we'll look at other scriptures, right? And I believe that this mighty angel is just simply a representative of our Lord God in this vision. And John receives some information here that Jesus wanted John to write to us. You see, it is indeed true, though, that the description of this angel here closely resembles scriptural um, descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? I'll go ahead and show you a few things here. First of all, right, though, you see there in verse one where this angel is clothed with a cloud. Keep that in mind, clothed with a cloud, okay? Turn to the book of Exodus. Mark this page, second book in your Bible, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. Again, reading in Revelation, John sees this mighty angel clothed with a cloud. I've touched on some of these scriptures in the past, but Exodus chapter 16 And verse 10. So Exodus 16, 10. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Okay, so you see that? Glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Now turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, verse nine. Exodus 19:9. And the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever." So there again, we see the Lord God associated with. A cloud. Now, turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. Verses 15 and 16. Exodus 24, 15. Then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So once again, the presence of the Lord associated with the cloud. Now I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter one. Again, why am I showing you all of this? Because John in Revelation sees this mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And I said to you that oftentimes we see the Lord God associated in scriptures with a cloud in that sense, okay? So in Acts chapter one, this is where Jesus ascended back up into heaven. Okay, 
Acts chapter one. And if you look at verse nine, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So we see that time and time again, and we also see in Revelation, I won't take you there right now, but Revelation 1-7, it tells us that when the Lord comes back, he will come with clouds, okay? So time and time again, as we turn back now to Revelation chapter 10, we see the, the Lord associated in this way. So you can indeed very much associate this mighty angel with the Lord himself. Okay? But again, I just look at this mighty angel as a representative of the Lord. Many others would say, no, this is the Lord, you know, and they will debate over that. Okay? So either way you go, I'm just showing you all the facts here in Scripture. Okay? Also, in verse 1 there of Revelation chapter 10, we see where or we see that a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And we've seen those descriptions of the Lord God in chapters of revelations that we've studied so far, right? Okay, we've seen some of those similarities to the Lord in the other chapters of Revelation that we've looked at. So in verse one, or I should say, is verse one describing Jesus or is it just a, simply a mighty angel? Again, that's for you to de to decide. I, I lean toward the simplicity of, of what is said is what is meant. And, and this mighty angel just is a mighty messenger of our Lord God. But you know, what's, in, what's more important here is what this angel has to say and what this angel has to reveal. And, and I believe that that's what the Lord wants us to get out of this message here. You know, more than he cares about us deciphering who this angel is, or trying to figure him out. He wants us to know, he wants us to get the message of this book, okay? So let's read on and see why this mighty angel has come on the scene here in this vision. Verse two, he had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So a very mighty angel indeed, right? He makes claim here in a sense to the land and to the sea. The whole earth needs to be aware of what this angel represents here in this, vi this vision. He represents the Lord of all, the Lord of the land, the Lord of the sea, the mighty God who is Lord over all, the creator of all, okay? And what happens next? Verse three, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, this isn't your normal everyday thunder as we know it here on earth because this thunder actually has something to say here. This th thunder actually says something. And in verse four, John says, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. So pause right there and picture John the apostle here for a moment. He's like, wow, wow, wait a minute. Let, let me get my pencil, you know, whatever he's writing with. I want to write this down. These seven thunders just spoke something. I want to write this down. This is amazing. This is awesome. I want to write it down. But then verse four continues. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now that's a bummer. 
for us, right? <laughs> but you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, this is what I think of when I see something like that. Why, Lord? Why are you telling us all this other stuff? Why can't we know what those thunders say? But then when I was studying this, Deuteronomy 29, 29 came to my mind and it says the secret things belong to our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. You might want to note that scripture, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I want to read it to you again. I'm not having you turn there. You can if you want, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of the law. Think about that. I mean, that's a a powerful verse of scripture to me. Secret things belong to God. In other words, what he knows, he knows. What he wants me to know, he'll let me know. But the things that he has let us know, that he has written in his word, he wants us to know. And not only does he want us to know them, he wants our children to know them. We are to pass these things on to our children. All that the Lord has revealed to us and all the things that he wants us to know. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. So as I read that and I say, oh, bummer, I wanted to know what those thunders said. That belongs to God, all right? You see, the Lord hasn't revealed everything to us on this side of of heaven. But all that he has revealed, again, he wants us to know it. And not only does he want us to know it, he also wants us to obey it. And again, like I said, he wants us to pass it on to our children. And here in Revelation 10, the Lord tells John to conceal something from us, right? John heard it. He was about to write it down. But John and Jesus are the only two people that have ever walked the face of the earth that knows what those thunders will someday say. They're the only ones that know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And John continues on in verse five. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Again, this is why I kind of read ahead. This is why I associate it when this angel put his foot on the earth and his foot on the sea, and I equated that to you with being the Lord as Lord over all. Because just as you read scripture in their context, you can fill in all the blanks, and that's what I did here. And you see that he's swearing, that's what he's doing. I'm on the land, I'm on the sea, I'm raising my right hand. I'm assuming it's his right hand, that's not said, but I'm picturing it like we're in court and we're testifying. I solemnly swear, okay? And who, am I, who is he swearing by? He swears by him who lives forever, forever and ever, right? That's God himself, right? Who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. You know, speaking of Jesus, Colossians chapter one, verse six says, for by him all things were created. 
that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Okay? So this mighty angel in verse six here is swearing by Jesus, our Lord and God. And what he swears is that things are going to escalate now. There will be no more delay, he says. Things are going to happen more rapidly now. You see, at this point in Revelation here, many people believe that there are about three and a half years left of the tribulation. They say this is the halfway point of the tribulation. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look up at Revelation chapter 11. Just one chapter, might be on the same page. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, John says. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside of the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, We're going to study that next week. But how long is 42 months? Well, 42 months of 30-day months is three and a half years. You take 42 months of 30-day months, you come up with three and a half years. Keep that in mind because real shortly here, I'm going to explain why I bring that up to you here, okay? And it'll all tie together here. But I'm going to take you on a slight detour here. As you know, if you've sat in on my revelation teachings thus far, I've talked to you about a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? This is what I believe from studying the book of Revelation alone. Now, when I say studying Revelation alone, I mean that I'm not taking any teaching from any other Bible book to come up with a pre-trib rapture. Okay. If you take a moment and turn back to Revelation chapter 3, go ahead and turn back there, Revelation chapter 3. Verse 10, Revelation 3.10. Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. You see, I personally believe, and some may disagree, but I believe that Jesus tells the church, right? Because remember, this was written to the churches, and this is one of the churches he's speaking to here, and we are the church today. But Jesus tells the church, the body of believers, that those that keep his commands to persevere meaning that they stay faithful till the end and they walk in accordance with his word. He will keep them from that hour from, of trial, that tribulation that is to come upon those that dwell on the whole earth. And how will he keep us from that trial? Well, he'll take us out of this world as found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But I can read Revelation by itself and come up with the pre-trib rapture just by reading that verse alone right there. 
Not only that, but there are other passages of Scripture that strongly convince me that the truly born-again people that keep the commands of the Lord on this earth will not go through the wrath or the tribulation. For example, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember the T's of the Bible. If you find one book that begins with the letter T, they're all together. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, And you became followers of us. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in the city of Thessalonica. He says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So he's saying, Hey, you're doing good, you Thessalonians. You're believers in the Lord, and you're, you're a good example to everyone around you. Verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Paul's saying, you're making our job as ministers of the gospel easy because you're living it, you're doing it, okay? For they, verse nine, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who does what who delivers us from the wrath to come so Paul here is exhorting the Thessalonian believers here to continue to wait on the Lord because Jesus is the one that is going to deliver us from the wrath that is to come today we still wait on the Lord we wait for him to call us out of here, okay? Now, if you tie that verse together there with Revelation 3.10 that I read to you where it says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world, right? It's pretty simple that we're not going to be here to go through the tribulation, I can also think of in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we have an example of Enoch. Right, Enoch or Enoch, however you want to say his name, he was a man noted for the fact that he walked with God. He was a righteous man. He walked with God, meaning that meaning that he was a righteous man. And Enoch did not see death. The Bible says God simply took him and brought him to Himself. Okay, Noah is another example. Noah and his family. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and Noah and his family were was saved from the wrath that came upon the earth at that time, right? So I'm totally convinced of a pre-trib rapture, meaning before the tribulation comes, the church, the body of believers, will be caught up and taken out of here. But I'm telling you, many Christian people don't agree with that teaching. They say, ah, the hour of trial in Revelation 3 does not refer to the tribulation. They say that Christians will go through part of the tribulation or maybe all of the tribulation. There's all kind of viewpoints on it, right? But I'm telling you that based on the scriptures I read and I'm sharing with you briefly some things here, I see it very simple. We're not going to be here, okay? 
So again, when I read Revelation, I come up with the fact that as long as I keep the Lord command, Lord's commands, as long as I persevere, I'm not going to be here during that great tribulation. If, of course, any of us are alive when that time comes, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when that time's coming. Okay? But the idea, though, now here's where we're getting back on track. And I wanted to tell you all of that about the pre-trib rapture and what I believe on that. But the idea of a seven-year tribulation period, do you know that that concept is nowhere to be found in the book of Revelation, a seven-year tribulation? It's not spoken of at all. A tribulation is, but the time frame, the seven-year time frame, is not. The only way that you arrive at a seven-year time frame for the tribulation is by going back to the book of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, and then interpreting Daniel's 70th week in the vision that Daniel had, you interpret that 70th week as a seven-year period. Again, I definitely believe in a pre-trib rapture, but I do not get dogmatic about the length of the tribulation because there has, there has to be a lot of interpreting going on to come up with that seven-year period. As I've studied it, you know, I, I've been around other pastors that dogmatically teach that seven-year period. But as I've studied on my own, I can't see it like that without doing a whole lot of interpreting to say that that tribulation is seven years long. But those that do hold firmly to that seven-year tribulation, they get that idea from Daniel chapter 9. And the belief there is that the 70 weeks of Daniel's vision, right? 69 of those weeks have already happened. They already took place in prophetically in over, you know, history, right? And after those 69 weeks, the people that believe in the seven-year tribulation, they'll tell you that the prophetic time clock stopped ticking. So 69 weeks of prophecy was fulfilled in all of history, and then the clock stopped. Why did it stop? Well, they say it stopped because the Jews rejected their Messiah. They rejected Jesus. So now we live in this period of time where the gospel is going forth. Ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven, the Holy Spirit came down on the believers in Acts chapter two. They began to go out and preach the gospel. And we still live in that time period today. So they say to come up with that seven year tribulation, Okay, the 69 weeks was over of prophecy and now time has stopped. And there's a 70th week yet to be fulfilled. And that prophetic time clock, they say, will start ticking again after the rapture of the church. So they believe in the pre-trib, right? They say the church will be taken out of here and then the 70th week will begin and the 70th week is the seven-year tribulation, okay? So, just to summarize, I myself am convinced of the length, or excuse me, am not convinced of the length of the tribulation being seven years from what I study in Scripture. But I am convinced that the true church, the church that belongs to the Lord, is going to be raptured and taken out of here. Okay? So, go ahead and, and turn back to Revelation chapter 11. I showed you Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2 here because those that hold to the belief of the seven-year tribulation would say that, okay, you see these 42 months here being mentioned? 
in Revelation chapter 11, that represents the halfway point of the tribulation. Again, 42 months is three and a half years. What's half of seven? Three and a half, okay? So this, this, so if this is a seven-year tribulation period, then they're saying that this section of Revelation, that would be the halfway point, right? Again, many people believe that. And I'm not arguing against that at all. I'm just simply teaching you that some believe this about Revelation and that tribulation period, and some believe that, right? And if you think I'm sounding wishy-washy on a seven-year tribulation, I don't disagree with you about that, but I just cannot stand here before you today and tell you that I'm convinced that with all that interpreting you have to do of Daniel chapter 9, that you can really come up with a seven-year period, right? I always do my best to teach people from an honest heart. If I'm not convinced of something internally myself, then I'm not going to teach it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to go ahead and and take the commentaries of someone else and stand before a group of people and teach what someone else said in their commentary. Okay, if it's not plain to me, or it, it, you know, or it's simply the interpretation of a man in a commentary, then I'm hesitant myself to latch on to it because you see, I really only have one teacher. There is one teacher that I do follow right? And he's not on the radio. He's not on TV. Uh, He's not from the United States, though I do believe he's here right now. He is the author of the world's best-selling book. This guy, this person that I follow, this teacher, he goes by the name Holy Spirit. He goes by the name Holy Ghost. He's the author of the world's best-selling book. And he's the only teacher that I will dogmatically follow. He's the only one that I will dogmatically listen to. Otherwise, I'll read what other men say and I'll test it. I'll go to scripture myself. And if I'm not convinced of it, I'm not going to stand before others and teach it. But if the Holy Spirit convinces me of it, like he has with the preacher of rapture and the scriptures, I'll teach it to you. Okay, so that's a very long rabbit trail. And back in Revelation chapter 10 now, This mighty angel solemnly swears that there will be no delay. And then in verse seven, but it says, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So think about that. The mystery of God would be finished at that time right? That he declared to his servants, the prophets. Okay. And it says that just before the seventh angel sounds, right? That's when that mystery would be finished. So what is the mystery? What is the mystery that God declared to his servants, the prophets being spoken of here? Well, now there are several scriptures that I can show you this morning that talk about the mystery of God. There are several, okay? As I was studying this, I looked at them all, but I had to narrow it down, okay, to keep it within the time frame that we do our studies here. So I'm only gonna show you one of them, okay? And you can research all the rest on your own that, re- that relate to the mystery of God. But turn, mark this page and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter three. 1 Timothy chapter three. 
While you're doing that, I'm going to go back and read verse 7 again of Revelation chapter 10. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God is finished at that point. What mystery? The mystery that he declared to his prophets. What mystery is that? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Okay, let's pause right there and let's reason together here as they say for a moment, right? Godliness was a mystery for centuries upon centuries. How can someone really know God? That was a great mystery. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told that the prophets of old realized that what they were writing was not for them, but it was rather for a future people. The prophets of old, they, they, they longed to know the answer to this mystery. How can somebody know God? They wanted to know the answer to this. And the mystery of godliness was revealed at a later time through Jesus Christ and now through the preaching of the gospel. And here in verse 16, we get a strong glimpse of the gospel. Again, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Here's the mystery. The mystery of godliness, the mystery that people wanted to know for years. How can we know God? How can man ever be righteous? How can we ever be in right standing with God? God was manifested in the flesh. People, people, how can you read that and not know Jesus is God? God was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. You see, godliness is no longer a mystery. The preaching of the gospel reveals the way to godliness. One must turn to God, turn to the God that was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. He still is preached today. We're still living in that period of time where the gospel is still going forth. And that God was received up in glory. That's Jesus Christ. And back in Revelation chapter time, or chapter 10, though, that time is, will come to an end someday when the mystery of godliness is not being revealed anymore. Today the gospel is going forth, but the day is going to come when judgment is going to come upon this earth. And it's, it's too late. The church is out of here. And it's too late at that point, right? The preaching of the gospel will be no more. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet, there will no longer be a revealing of the mystery of God to the people of this world. For now, again, in this present day, the mystery of godliness can continue to be preached in the world. We can still come to know this God who became flesh. This God who was received up in glory and this God who is coming again. We can still know him through the gospel message being preached. 
But the day is coming, but that day, I should say, is coming to an end. And verse eight in Revelation chapter 10 continues. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it'll make your stomach bitter, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So John here gets some information from this little book. It's information that is to be in him, right? He must digest it. To full, and he must fully comprehend it. It's bitter inside of him in that it contains information about the future that is not good as it pertains to peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. There's prophecy still to come in the, in the future in a part of this uh, tribulation period, right? Again, if you want to say it's a seven years, and there's three and a half years left, that's fine, okay? But there's more prophecy, to come, and that prophecy is a bitter, a bitter pill to swallow in that sense. But it's sweet to his taste because it's the word that God wants him to preach. Remember, remember, John is a is is the preacher of Revelation because he's the one that's writing it all down. And as we go on in this book, there will be prophecies still to come as we keep studying this book. Prophecies to peoples to nations, to tongues, and to kings. And as we see John digesting this little book, right, we too know that we have a book today that is to be in us. The words of that book that we have today is to be in us, right? The word of God is to be sweet on our lips in that we go out and we present it to people the world around us in a loving way, but its contents, the contents of the word of God are sometimes bitter because it cuts us to the heart, right? The the word of God often rebukes us. It often corrects us, right? But we must digest it so that it becomes the source of our lives. The word of God must first be in us before it can come out of our mouths in a sweet way. You see, we will come upon many hearts that are hard toward the word of God. But there are also those that will hear the word of God and gladly receive it. When Jesus told his parable of the sower that goes out to sow, he talked about all the different types of grounds that will receive it. Some will reject it, right? The end times lies ahead for all of mankind. And as we study this book of Revelation here, there's still more to come. And that's what the angel's telling John here. Hey, there's more to prophesy. There's more to come, you know, but he he wants John to have this within him and to preach it, right? So this world, though, will not continue on like it is right now forever. Oftentimes, we can find ourselves very complacent thinking that, A day came, a day went. A day came, a day went. Another day is going to come. Another day is going to come. But will it? And how should we be living today? We have a book. 
we have a book, a best-selling book, that we are to read, that we are to digest, and that we are to have on our lips and in our mouth, right? The Lord has given us his word to eat it up and to live it out. To eat it up and to live it out, right? Think about the food that you eat every day. Food is the sustenance of our lives, right? We will die without it. And without the word of God, we'll die spiritually. Remember, we're looking at spiritual things here, I said in the very beginning, right? And that's what the man of God does, the Bible says, compares spiritual things to spiritual things. But if we don't take time to think about it, we can get so caught up in the carnal things, so caught up in the fleshly things, so caught up in things, 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 that we never, never look at who we are spiritually. So when we gather on Sundays like this, just like I, like I exhorted everybody either last week or the week before, gather around the word of God at least once a week. Make it a point in your life at least once a week, but you really need more than that. What if you only ate food once a week? Now we make food a priority, but we need to make the word of God a priority in our lives. You see, Jesus is coming again. And we may not know everything that there is to know about, say, this book of Revelation here. I know I sure don't. But I do want to let others know what I do know. And today, we've seen that, and we all know this fact, right? We all know that God was manifested in the flesh. That God was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And we also know that that God is coming again. And it might be today. We really don't know. But he, he's given us words to live by. He's given us commands to keep. And when we keep his commands and when we live by his words, he has promised us that we will not go through the wrath that is to come. But we must make him the priority in our everyday life. Let's pray. Lord God, Again, we thank you for your word, your living word. Lord, your word that can do what no other words on the face of this earth can do. Lord, your word is powerful, sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And that's why your word can sometimes be bitter within us because it reveals the truth. It reveals that well, maybe we are complacent. It reveals that maybe we are not living right. But Lord, we thank you for your blood. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we can come unto you and confess our sins and repent and refocus. And I pray for all of our hearts here today, Lord, that we would refocus, focus all the more, whatever it is, Lord, on you, the living word. We thank you for your presence in our lives and we pray that as we go forth in the rest of this week that you'd go before us. Pray your will to be done in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.